0: As a product leader, I always want the vision to be two years sooner. I always wanna see that, that scaled impact as fast as possible, but I don't think that's really a criticism of our people and our ecosystem, and more of the humbling experience that it is when you start digging into a big hairy problem, how much more complex it always looks than on the surface. It's very easy to go talk about a super app vision. It's really hard to build an open source framework and community and sustaining businesses that do it.
1: That was Alex Kioki, Chief Product Officer at Pagoda, formerly known as Near Inc. This is a very special episode because Pagoda is the engineering arm of the Near ecosystem responsible for major protocol upgrades, including a lot of the tech stack currently known as a Blockchain Operating System. This makes it a very special podcast that strikes a really nice balance between Alex's personal journey from an early employee at LinkedIn into Pagoda via Kraken and his own AI startup along the way, the principles of product management, the theory, the mission, the vision, and finally, deeper insights into the state of engineering on the near protocol, where we're at, and where we're going i really enjoyed this conversation because it is a no holds barred raw honest exploration packed with alpha and unique insight it's also an interesting episode because when i announced that i was having alex on the podcast there were no shortage of outstanding community members ranging from near foundation and former pagoda employees that sent me dms with community questions these questions are total fire and we got some incredible insights from them But I do apologize because Alex had a tight agenda and two hours were just not enough. I know that two hours sound like a long time, but trust me, it is worth every minute. Without further ado, let's enjoy this conversation with Alex Kiyoki. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I've got with me Alex Kiyoki chief product officer at Pagoda. Welcome, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me, A V, Pleasure to be here. Have you been told that your name sounds like Steve Aoki?
0: I have heard that. So funny story. It's an Italian name, so Nioki Pasta. Uh, many people confuse it for a Japanese name. So there's been times where I've come into meetings or different, uh, and people are like, you look very different than what I expected. And I was like, really that's because they think steve aoki right who's amazing dj great fun but uh, different man
1: different background and i'm sure that steve would be a great fit for a product role in web3 yeah (laughs) potentially you could and with those headphones you look like you would be a great fit in the dj world as well but different men it's really curious to me because phonetically it sounds the same but I would almost use that as a cue. Like, I would use a phonetics as a cue to understand how to spell, like, the word. Because Aoki, Japanese and Spanish have, like, very clean vowels. And yeah, then there's, yeah. like, a K there, which is pretty straightforward. But Italian, the C-H, some people would say sh** or... I've seen all sorts of combinations, and I'm sure that you have to over your lifetime. Oh, for sure. I've gotten,
0: like, karaoke, chiochi, chichachi... It's like that, Chachi. Yeah, that's a new, that was a fun one. Yeah. But I think it's one of those things where, uh, as you said, Latin languages that there's a little bit of a difference there versus probably the Anglo side of English. Probably where yeah. the difference is. But yeah, look, it's, it's fun to have a noteworthy last name. People usually, as they get
1: to know me, actually just start calling me by my last name. It's fun. And I think it's like an interesting last name, but it's like, mid-level complexity, because <laughs> something that I've noticed with both Ilya and Alex Chichenko yeah. is that in people's mind, they can see all the letters that are in the surname, but they can't quite remember what the actual surname is. So I've seen all sorts of Chechenko, like I've seen all sorts of like weird surnames that don't actually get to it. I even have to check myself when I have to write their names. What is their actual surname? Like Popashunki, Polin, Polus. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's very true. culturally insensitive. I know. I'm
0: sorry. No, no, no. I think if it's not your native tongue, the, the, the hack that I use is I usually just say, before I embarrass myself and butcher your name, please tell me how I should say this. And I've personally found because I, I basically only speak one
1: and a half languages, if that that generally people appreciate it. So that's where I just work from. I never do it on purpose. But I do enjoy beginning the podcast with a good laugh at how my honest attempt just falls flat most of the <laughs> times. Nailed nine, so, You nailed line. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I did spend like an hour in the mirror like, Chioke. chiochi. Uh, I'm guessing that your other half is Italian? My, my partner or my ethnicity? Sorry. You say one and a half languages? Oh, no, no. no. Actually,
0: my half language is not Italian. It's actually Spanish. Yeah, oh, um, really? Because- yeah, so my mom is, or she since passed, but she was Spanish and Costa Rican. And living in California, there was like a discussion between, does he learn Italian or does he learn Spanish? Spanish is helpful here. However, I am doing Duolingo for Italian now because every time I go to Italy, somebody goes like, oh, you're one of us. And I'm like, grazie. Yes. <laughs> and they're yes. like, oh, no. Oh, please. Oh, you've hurt me. I'm a bad Italian. I don't really. I have the name, so I'm learning it now. And it's actually been fun. I was just in Italy for a friend's wedding. Thoroughly embarrassed myself. But like
1: many things, people appreciate honest efforts.
0: So at least we have a good laugh and uh, I can keep
1: moving my way forward. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I think everyone should be learning like a second or third language just to get like the newer circuitry going. Oh, yeah. Every time that I go to Germany... It's been a while now, but summer of 2017 and 2018, one month in Berlin and sometime in Switzerland, in Zurich. And every time I was like, the words are always going to be the same. Like they're really long and weird, but once you learn one, it's always going to be the same. And then you stack one on top and over time you can construe basic sentences. I've been using this app called Lingvist. It's a startup from Estonia. Cool. And they do the cards model and... What I like about them is that they show you how many words you've learned, but they also tell you like, hey, you need these many words to have like basic proficiency. Mm. And it's not that many words. Like, I don't know, I guess I'm a little bit competitive, but I'm like, I can learn 500 words. I can can learn basic grammar. I think it's interesting when you put it that
0: way, because there's a really interesting psychology around motivation and quantifying something. I look back to when I took Spanish classes in school, And you spend a year learning maybe a hundred words for most, at least in the States. Our language requirements, our education requirements are not probably as good as Australia and Europe. I actually am pretty confident in that assumption. You spend a year learning a hundred words. I think if somebody had told me when I was 13 or 14, like just go learn a hundred words, that probably would have been better than just like spoon feeding it to you and not telling you what the goal is. I don't know. Something interesting there.
1: Yes, there's two things. First, education systems. I think that what probably makes Australia and I'm assuming some parts of Europe, certainly the UK different to the US, is that we have standardized testing. So every kid in every high school sits the same test. And then those are the scores used for university. So you actually have interesting benchmarks and the universities are almost able to like feed down to the schools the standard that you need to get in. I've been listening to some things about the U.S. recently, but it does seem like every university has like their own entry pathways, and it's very subjective yeah. for each. We have standardized testing, too. So we have
0: STAR testing and SAT and ACT, STAR for like elementary, entry, and then SAT and ACT for high school to university. The problem is that the standards are not consistently enforced across different private versus public institutions, yeah. all sorts of loophole rules and there was like a huge documentary that actually came out recently about essentially like very wealthy people finding ways to make door donations into sports programs to like hack that so that capitalism does a lot of great things you may not argue though that an education it has the best incentive alignment there i don't know
1: the all-in podcast has a beautiful take on it and i personally like it because they're all billionaires maybe except jason <laughs> But they're honest. You're like, hey, if you want to pay to get your kid into school, that's fine. Let's just acknowledge they're not as smart. They're going to pay more and then they'll be subsidizing other smart people. And because that's the issue, right? It's a fairness of it. If you only have 50 places, don't let them all be taken up by people that are either paying or getting into sports. Maybe have 50 places, 50 places for people that are actually merit-based and then 50 for the rest you pay you play sports and you are someone's son so anyway, i have
0: i have a bias but the university of california public system essentially runs on that system there's a guaranteed spot for standardized test high scores are in the top 10 percent in the state in some uc research institution guaranteed spot the problem is that they don't always get the best school spots so like cal berkeley UCLA are often like the top rated ones and they don't always get those spots. So like, it's just this forever issue education. If I was being completely open and honest, long-term in my life, that would be something I'd like to be able to like spend more time working on. I think if you look at what can have an outsized impact on the world over many generations, it is education. Wait, not near what, what are you? NEAR can too, right? And maybe it's education powered by NEAR. Maybe that's the magic bullet, but I just think it's like a fascinating topic. It's, unfortunately, it's like a privilege though in the US to be able to help education, like to work in an education nonprofit. Like you already have to have been like crazy successful. It's weird. Interesting. It's all part of
1: the same stack, When you try to talk to someone about Web3 and the problems in the world and this is how we code and this is how we do product, if they don't have a good basis for education, most things are going to go over the head. That's why we're living in such interesting times where we've got the ability to go straight to people. So you bypass any, what do you call it? Any blockers in the past. You can build your audience, you can talk to people. But now what we're finding is that there are challenges in scaling that because the general population have not been exposed to a lot of this information in the past. By the way, in some ways, not you directly, but the boss as a whole have Great inspired assembly. me. I like that. <laughs> <It's> always <laughs> smooth. Sometimes when I'm editing, I'm like, "That was a uh, really did, did a 180 there." <laughs> no, I like it. I really did like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the boss inspired me to start learning how to code again. Oh. So I started learning Python in 2018. No, around there. With a book called Automate the Boring Things. And Mm -hmm. it was a book deliberately aimed at office people. And I was coming out of the law and I was like, I hate this, but maybe I can do some in between, like my professional education and technology. I really enjoyed it. And fast forward to today, the issue that I have is... With the LLMs, ChatGPT, I've been talking to Claude a lot from Anthropic. I was in a really weird spot where I'm like, do I really need to learn how to code? Or can I just get the LLM to do all the code for me? And I'm open to hear other people's point of view. Maybe there's a way to hack this. But my take on it is you need to know the basics. I've given the thing like 20 ideas for applications. It gives me code back and I have no idea what it is. So I've signed up for a free code camp. And I'm really happy that the curriculum takes you like really back to the basics. Like I felt a little bit stupid at the beginning, starting like HTML and CSS. But I've had a blast. Baby steps, split screen. I can see what I do on the left and then it changes on the right. And I also like it that those three initial modules, so there's like HTML, CSS, like responsive, so there's some React in there and then it moves into JavaScript. I think that those three would probably be enough to enable me to understand what's going on yeah and to be able to like inspect components fork them compose them that's awesome wow what a, what a journey That really warms my heart actually to hear
0: that it's been inspiring for you to rekindle something you're interested in and might be something that helps you build something you're passionate about at the end of the day like that's why i'm here as opposed to some other corporate job or other opportunities to work in investing or something like that like i What I love about product and I think what keeps me coming back as a product leader, no matter what the problem is, it's those stories. It's being able to see the impact on how what you build enables someone to enjoy something new. Hopefully that provides a real utility. I would say like the boss is in an interesting place. It's very new. Like the existing developer experience that's there is like a great, Start for showcasing what's what I call the art of the possible, but it still needs quite a bit of work for it to be like a full forced application engine. Um, that's going to
1: be the title of the podcast: the art of the, the possible. art of the possible.
0: Yeah, I like it. That is, I mean, that's my and there's so much to say about that. That's my 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 personal feelings about what makes a great product is is it enables people to see the art of the possible. Now, what enabling somebody means meeting them where they're at, so meeting a developer and how they want to see things versus, you know, an average Web 2 user, somebody who's used to using Facebook or a banking app, or versus a giant enterprise. You have to meet them where they are and enable them, and if you could speak to what matters to them through your product,
1: then you achieve that moment. Do you find... because? I did crowdsource some questions from some people that I know that are building on BOSS, former Pagoda employees, former foundation employees that did product on some related projects. And before we, I'll leave those for the end, but one thing that has always been curious so much. I'd love to hear community. One thing that was clear (laughs) to me is there's always tension between product and engineering. So as you say, meet people where they are. I'm wondering what your experience has been between what some people may call these like empty words or whatever product people make the big money by just like saying all these design thinking and you can just sure. copy paste the framework and put the art of the there. possible. Pay me. The art of the possible. It's <laughs> <is> just clickbait. <laughs> if you get a podcast download, but not a fucking product, like how, what are we doing here? No, so, so I'm wondering how have you seen that gap? And especially when we look at web three. And you are specifically, I know that from some of the talks that you've done in the past, you saw that opportunity to bridge that gap between what could be possible with Web3 Uh and the near tech stack. So yeah, maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, I guess like I would speak
0: to it on two ways, like one more tactically today to your question about like meeting, meeting developers where they are and like what the gap is and then long-term, where is the vision going? at the end of the day, like you have to address both at the same time. That's what's really hard about product is like you have to keep iterating towards what people are using today and making it better, but it needs to be leading towards a vision that has meaningful value for an audience. And this is sometimes a bad word in Web3, but it has a sustainable competitive advantage. (laughs) And like, I think I'm I'm a philosophy major by education. Like I, I, I love to think about the hundred year problem. But you can't make a 100-year impact if you can't survive. And so, again, bringing this question back to the two things, it's what is the gap today and what is the future possibility of where we could get to a really exciting, sustaining ecosystem? Today, I think the biggest issue with BOSS and the component framework really comes down to the JavaScript VM itself has got some restrictions within it that on the surface looks like, why are you making me stay to very narrow hold? And why can't I bring in like my own libraries? Why can't I make this work exactly how I wanna see it in, in the architecture for my application? And it's frustrating for people right now. And there is an intentional reason why that is, and we are like actively working on, a, on an improvement, should be ready within a month or two help people get the best of both worlds. So let's start with the intention. The intention is really to build trustless front-end components that work on a decentralized stack. Why does that matter? Would you go to a website today and I go to, let's say, uniswap.com right, or app.uniswap, right, I have to bookmark that app to remember that this isn't the fraud version. There's a human trust that's associated with front end of what you're working with isn't one that's like scraping my wallet or putting me into a protocol that's just going to drain my account. And we actually, for as much as we say we have dApps, like it's operating on human trust as to who published that application. When really everything else is happening in crypto, whether it's the storage, the money itself, or the smart contracts that are automating back end trust, are all working off of a trustless system. And yet the place where everybody's spending their time still requires a guess and check of trust.
1: I really like the way that you laid out the evolution of like web three. There's like Bitcoin, we've got a ledger, then there's Ethereum, Yeah, it's like smart computing. But we've always been missing that last mile of how do people interact with it. It, to me, the equivalent, and I'm really good at coming up with weird analogies, is like saying, hey, we've got an island, it's going to be perfect, paradise, <laughs> you can make money, great weather, kangaroos. Own but your own data, to get... master of your own environment. <laughs> master of magic and the arch and everything in the, mid- in the middle. But to get there, you need to catch my private jet. And I decide <laughs> when to fly, who I fly, how much it costs, and fuck you if you don't like it. That's not really a paradise island if there's that, yeah. I was blocker in the middle, middleman, whatever you want to call sure. it. Sure. The, the layer that I usually come in with, it's like the user experience. Uh huh. For me, Web3 has not been usable. I had never really given much thought to, yeah, it may or may not be usable, but the actual ownership of the structure of that layer also matters. So yeah, it's been fascinating. I am very excited to have you on because I first yeah. came across you on a banyan collective video on youtube talking about super apps i saw the twitter post i saw your post oh you saw it back in the day yeah
0: i saw the one you just posted about the hint as to who's
1: gonna speak oh yeah yeah i've been like munching bits here and there but i've learned to take my time to judge people okay because few people have vision but even fewer people have execution So back in the day, I really liked the super apps vision and when did you join Pagoda? It's been almost a year now. Oh, sorry, Pagoda. Sorry, Sorry.
0: I joined the ecosystem. It's been nine months Pagoda, but about a year for the ecosystem. I
1: was a floating
0: consultant for a little while. Yeah.
1: Okay. In mid-2021 to late-2021, the first iteration of the Guilds program from the New Foundation I started the Silicon Craftsman, the product and user experience guild. And it was interesting because I could see that we had all the raw materials for creating really good user experiences. I just like the technical ability to do it myself. And it may have been a little bit early to bring in those product and designers. Cause we were like, yeah, we can build it. And they were like, yeah, cool. Who do we talk to or how? I think that was probably the stage where the developers were putting all the primitives in, and oh. you can definitely see the evolution with what bosses now. But yeah, that vision about the super apps, I find really interesting. And we're still working things... towards it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Because okay. then I saw the evolution of the presentation at ETH Denver, alpha.near.org uh, get released. Then I saw you at Consensus. And uh, yeah, how are you tracking? Are you happy with progress? I
0: mean, it- I am, it's so many thoughts that come to that when you ask that, like, I am really proud of the team and the ecosystem to pull off multiple big product experiments on new tech stack, new user experience. It's like an insane feat. And I've worked at a lot of great companies and the quality of the people here, not just technical execution, but the desire to build great things and work towards it is amazing. I know it's frustrating sometimes because open source ecosystems are a little chaotic, but I can say I worked at some like very big companies that are noteworthy Silicon Valley companies and like the people here are as good as anybody. I would say the other side of it is like as a product leader, I always want the vision to be two years sooner. I always want to see that that scaled impact as fast as possible. But I don't think that's really a criticism of our people and our ecosystem and more of the humbling experience that it is when you start digging into a big hairy problem, like how much more complex it always looks than on the surface. So it's like very easy to go talk about a super app vision. It's really hard to build an open source framework and
1: community and sustaining businesses that do it. I think you've nailed it. And if you've been following me, sometimes I lose my patience and have a crack at people. Mostly on Telegram because I'm always sleep-deprived. Sometimes I go very public on some topics. And I think you've touched on something which is really interesting. Pagoda has world-class talent. I'd say that the foundation in the Marie era has been actually really good. With hiring, as far as I can tell, got world-class talent. Business development, we're getting top-down great deals. And then the question is, how can we have the same approach for recruiting? World class talent at the grassroots level. So important. It's where really, do really the important. best developers live? Where do the people with the most ambitious idea live? Where are the people that tried and failed in other ecosystems because they were constrained by those ecosystems? And that's where I lose my shit with the community. I'm like, the NDC cannot be this black hole that absorbs everything. We cannot be the bureaucracy blockchain. No. Like, we cannot pull in the few builders that we have and distract them from actually building. So yeah, I I know that it is not your job or even Pagoda's job to build the community side of things. But if you have anything to say on that, I think it would be appreciated.
0: Yeah. yeah no, I think it's a really good question. And for us to really succeed at our mission, we have to figure that question out. I think the hardest part is how? And I think what's really difficult is if you look at this, like there isn't exactly a template for how to do this. Like we can get inspiration from a few places. So like, Bitcoin community is purposely like an on. And even the early days of Bitcoin, if you looked at it, was like a very small group of people. If you think about the, the great schism of the block space wars, right? It was a small group of people that were discussing that. People forget that it was maybe like a 50 people in that room. And there were like big industry titans that we all know that were happened to be there, but it was a small group. And then ETH has done like a pretty good job of creating this ecosystem. But the problem is that I honestly believe that so much of ETH's coherence as a community is really actually just based on DeFi at the end of the day. Like I think 50 to 60% of the reason why people are there are because there's just like a really healthy economy that works well in DeFi. But you can't, just recreate that in near like you can't just take those two things and copy and paste it and we we have to figure out our own approach so to speak sorry you were about to say something
1: no i think you're right but if you double click i think the theorem has a few more things to it one is time totally seven plus years to fuck around <laughs> eight years now so if you take into account that time frame and what they've actually built you have enough time to go to conferences, get drunk, build on top of each other. Like, we've never really had any breakthroughs. DeFi is only possible if your base currency, it's now $2,000, because now you've got people holding onto a lot of, like, magic money, and they're able to leverage. If you have protocols that have themselves tokens with real revenue. Like, I was looking at Refinance. The only tokens with volume are near stablecoins, Meta recently, the stable pools are moving a lot of money, like linear, near X, and S And most other protocols, including ones that I think are pretty successful now, like Spin Finance, they're delaying the token launches. So it's We're not gonna grow unless we get more volume. We're not gonna get more volume unless we get more tokens. Chicken in the air. TVL's not gonna go up. Like yeah. we're not really capturing the real value, quote unquote, of the ecosystem, because these tokens are just not launching. Even things like most successful things. HEPOM, no token. Probably for the best in that case, because it doesn't pollute from the vision. Near social or however you want to call it, no token. Most NFTs that we're minting are all, let's call them, social NFTs. Like, they're not art. They're not being sold. Like, sure. we're creating different kind of experiences. So, yeah, we need to somehow own the narrative of the builder's blockchain for mass adoption. So to and your that's point.
0: why. Oh, sorry. You
1: no, know, I, I just gonna say that, and that's why I get really frustrated when all the focus is on the NDC. I get it's important. I'm involved. No one in Web3 is gonna come because of governance unless they wanna steal money. We need to find a way to either have multiple competing narratives and then cannibalizing each other. And if we have to choose, builders come first. Let 30 people do the governance. No one gives a fuck about that. Where do we have 3,000 builders? they have got 8,000 people on your social. Like those are the troops that we need to rally. Like these 30 need to unlock and enable the power for all these 3,000. And every day that we're not talking about builders is this very real technical debt that we continue to accrue. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Apologies for jumping in. You just got me excited because I share a lot of your observations. <laughs> Look, there's two components in my opinion, when it comes community. So the first is exactly what you're saying. It's like, I would rather take eight to 10,000 hyper-passionate people who are actively contributing into an ecosystem than just have hundred thousand profiles any day. Because with a group like that, and if you really think about this on a pound for pound basis versus our true competition, which is let's say centralized services, let's say AWS, if you have eight to 10,000 people who are self-starting, economically thinking, collaborating, you actually have the workforce capacity of a medium to large company. Like with something like we don't think enough about, like we say, oh, to 10,000 people, that's not enough people. Actually, like that puts you pound to pound against any Fortune 100 company potentially in, in technology.
1: I'm on the community side. I can tell you eight to 10,000 right now, it's an army. Like we take over the world. But, but
0: that's what I'm saying. This number does, like, I think we're on the same page. Like that number on the surface doesn't seem like a lot of people if you're saying Web3 is a household item. But if we think it from what is the first step that we need to get to to even be able to achieve our vision of this open web, of, of decentralizing the attention layer, at the user layer that you described, we need that army. And I think we've been like, hey, build this technology, put in some people into the ecosystem, and then magic will appear, we'll get a billion people here. As opposed to, we now have a technological edge that still needs improvement, like we asked the first question, but it needs a lot of improvement. How do we then use that edge to go recruit an army that puts us on the same pound for pound playing field of a Fortune 100 tech company? And then we have the right to get to a billion, a billion users,
1: and that framework is something that gives you an edge over the web two model. That 100%. not only do you have the same manpower, but you have people that are motivated or ideally aligned, like principles based. Like yeah. I remember, I think his name is Jake from the Cosmos Ecosystems. Dow coolest guy in the world. At Denver on a panel for Near Day, he said. I have, or I can get Google engineers contributing to these projects for free because they want to get that sense of belonging because the project is cool. They've got culture. Matt Lockyer has culture. For sure. We have never really had much of that going on here, or we've had these like moments where we're trying to define what we are, as much as to remind people that we need to find that true core. Mm. We are a builder's blockchain. I like that the town halls recently, they're giving a lot of visibility to partnerships and projects building. But if we were to drill down on the point of how do we recruit this army? Yeah, let's do that. I have some views, always. Two things. First is, we've got a Catch-22. Catch-22 are dangerous when people in the Catch-22 don't realize that they're in the Catch-22. So I think that the foundation is doing, or whatever institutions on NEAR are doing a great job of pushing the technology and they're assuming that there are people on the community side able to take it and run with it and the community side may have been a little bit more passive or not really knowing what to do or waiting for someone's queue and because they see progress on someone pushing here they're not doing the follow-on effects so to give you an example After many months of nomading around the world, I'm back in Australia and as frustrated as I get, and I'm often up to 2am in the morning fighting idiots and bureaucracy and NDC stuff. I'm like, I just want to hunker down in my island. I have a meeting tomorrow. I want to have a product lab. I want to have a team of savages where I can just tell everyone, fuck you. This is what we're building. Every time that I go away and do my thing, I earn respect because people can see your contribution and people can see value. Yeah. Every time you come down to people's talking points, you get ignored, you lose respect, you're wasting time. Mm-hmm. So, how can we, yeah, I guess, balance the two? So, that would be in the catch 22. Yeah. The second bit was related. I think the foundation is killing it at conferences. If Denver consensus, if you see Korea in general, near pack coming up. So, yeah, I'd like to get your insights on what the reception has been like at those in-person conferences? Do we have any data around interest, conversion, and maybe how can we replicate that? Or once again, empower the community to do more of those things, maybe at a smaller scale, but yeah. more around the world. I'm thinking meetups, hackathons with universities, etc.
0: Yeah, for sure. A uh, lot of great thoughts to so drill in there. So taking from like the broadest framework level first, I think what we have to do is embrace that near.org is something very potentially powerful for us. And like, we're, I don't know if you're aware of it's actually owned in a community trust. It's not owned by Pagoda or Foundation. I don't know if people, enough people know this, but it's true. And so Pagoda is like a steward. And if you've been seeing even on some of these recent event announcements, Near Week, half did their own component that is one of the primary page components now you go there you go to news that's designed built by near week with pagoda engineering and product being like an advisor to it with our expertise and so if i think we could take more of near.org and make it a reflection of the community values that we want it to be that we can have something that takes the best web two i would say like product business practices and applies it to our web three ethos And those Web2 business practices are super high focus on things, but conversion to account. Like when somebody comes to near.org, like how easy is it to get started and find your track? And there are benchmarks for this, like 5% conversion rate of qualified traffic is considered like a killer experience in Web2. In Web3, like people are lucky to get like sub like 0.1%. Right now, Like near.org is converting between about 1.5 to 2.5%, which means by web three standards, like we're amazing. By Web2 standards, you take like Twitter or Facebook or something as a comp, we're doing like, okay, how do we get to excellent there? So when people wanna come to us, it's super easy. And then how do we make sure that the environment they come into is this community built environment where they get the values inherently by using the product? That's how we take all of these pockets of energy and focus it towards something that can get a compound effect to that eight to ten thousand people. In my opinion,
1: a hundred percent. And I think that when I chose Near as ecosystem to double down back in the day, very early days, it was that web two product focus. I think that to this day, maybe definitely Aptos and Sui are the only ecosystems that also have that. Lays focus on product and like building. A bunch of ex-meta uses. people there, really good product people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is gonna be probably a demoralizing question, but that's okay.
0: No, I mean- Because we gotta-
1: Honest questions are the most important one. So. We gotta deal with reality so we can improve. On your ETH Denver, oh well, whatever, on one of the many talks yeah. that you've had, and sure. I've noticed uh, some of these presentations have also been given by Ilya in different settings. I think that you nailed down the value proposition and honestly, even after dealing with a lot of drama very recently on the governance side, watching these presentations are what make you go, yeah, let's do it. If you were to single out some of the key points and ask people in the ecosystem today, how many do you think actually know about it or get it? Full stack JavaScript development. Yeah. fast or you know, the meta transactions that are free on near.org, the, the remote login with email recovery, social recovery. Honestly, I think that most people that have been in the ecosystem for a long time, it's crazy that being a borderline near maxi sometimes is a disadvantage because they just don't take the time to keep up with the latest technical things. Do you have any sort of data or KPIs on how these concepts are being? introducing the community, adopted by applications?
0: It's a good question. There's two things that are difficult there. Those technologies you gave examples of really, to most people, even near maxis, like you're saying, they're just words because they don't mean anything in themselves. Technical approaches to doing something that hopefully makes an application easier to use or more intuitive. And the hard reality is that until that's applied into products that people have lasting value for, it means nothing to most people, even technical people. They need to see it be real. They... And then the second part, which we need to keep improving, which Pagoda, Ilya and I have had some open talks about, we need to keep improving on. And it's a focus area for us for the next few months. It's open sourcing these things. Like FastAuth SDK, we did an insane prototype. There's, three or four new technologies that come together to make that real. It's still not open source. The reason why it's not is like there are major things that we still need to iron out from that prototype. That SDK is still not available. We're trying to get it available by September. So it's this combination of two things where I need to see it in a use case that resonates with me. And I need to be able to look under the hood to see how it works. And where we... I think just continue to need to have relentless improvement on as Pagoda, just being open about how we need to get better is showing that use case very clearly and showing the code that anybody can use from very quickly. And that needs to happen faster follow than the marketing announcements have been
1: put. Marketing people, dirty. No, no, I mean, it's. I'm on the marketing side. Yeah, I was about to say. It's me, I'm sorry. Okay. But when you say lasting products, do you think there's a step in between? Can we have small, silly apps purely for the purposes of experimentation and especially getting the technology in people's hands? Like I'm thinking Metabiddle whatever, two, three, whichever was the last one. The categories of the prompts were very broad. Which in some ways are good because people can just bring their ideas and build. But I do wonder whether they were broad enough where from the outside looking in without any prior context, there weren't any pointers. Like for instance, I am tempted to go to a university here and be, build me an application, anything, end-to-end JavaScript. You don't even have to say it's Web3. There's going to be a JavaScript hackathon. How many JavaScript developers in this university? Come and build me something, have some nice prices, have some teams. They could build something really silly and basic. It doesn't have to leave past the hackathon. But I believe my hypothesis going in would be once young, ambitious talent realize that by using a language that they understand, they can build end-to-end Web3, it's game over. Like, why would you ever go and try to understand how Solana works? Why would you do Solidity that gets you halfway through with a ton of limitations? Form. And this is a putting technology in people's hands that I'm referring to, even faster. Yeah. to any hackathon and be build an application, almost like a mock-up, and go and sign people up, like literally. All the requirement in the same way that we're doing a very low bar, easy requirement of deploying on BOSS. We can have the same for fast auth. Just get people hands-on experience, just like I'm doing now with the HTML, CSS, and I can change a yeah. hex and see it on the screen. Yeah. We need to get to that magic moment of, holy shit, it's an SDK. I don't know how long it takes to incorporate, but I'm assuming it's not that long. And then I can onboard any users on a bus stop or whatever, on a pool hole, and now they're in. So I think that those are the things that we really need to keep drilling. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I think
0: the form of what we need to get to, no debate from me on that. I think the question is just like, how do we get there? And it's a messy path. It's case examples of what's hard about this is, like we, we do a lot of hackathons on the existing boss component system. Going back to one of your earlier questions, right? I need to be able to extend my own libraries. In order to do that, right, but still maintain these trustless, decentralized components that have a security model that means like I can embed a component anywhere and it's not gonna infect the rest of my JavaScript. We have to re-architect the virtual machine. So we are calling VM2 is like the technical project we're working on. So what we get stuck in this chicken the egg with is like, we do these grassroots movements exactly we're saying like, go build a full stack JavaScript application. Builders go to it. Some builders are super creative and they figure out ways to make it work. But like 80, 90% of it run into the same limitations and we got to get it to a better spot to be able to take this group of let's say about 160 or so component developers that are in here today and grow it to 500. That's the set of improvements. Another is going to be a new set of improvements doing all the go-to-market activities you just described that like we're going to need to get it to a like thousand. And I think what I've been trying to do on some of these town halls and again, Ilya and I have been talking about how to make this even better, is give a better sense of what are the orders of magnitude that we need to get to and what are the requirements that we're hearing from the community. Some of our expertise we think will be these each steps to get there. And I think if we do a better job of communicating that out, then more people like yourself and other hyper-passionate community members know like what places to jump in. And that's where we need to grow to by the end of the year. Put simply, in my opinion, like we don't figure this out by the end of the year. We have bigger problems. And I think product people are usually like scared to say things like that because they want to be able to run in some sort of like strategic ambiguity. But I think if you really believe in what we're trying to do here, you need to be realistic about the fact that we have an insight with a competitive advantage. And now it's time to open up the community and guide where we can make this competitive advantage grow in these kind of concentric, consistent rings. And if we don't do that, then we don't get escape velocity. I know these are all like $2 words, but it's important to think about this like in terms of product maturity curve. We don't get escape velocity. And if there's another downturn, then it's going to really hurt the ecosystem again. And so I sometimes personally wish that we would have more open conversations like this about what are we really facing as an ecosystem and like what opportunity that we have. It doesn't have to be like doom and gloom. I just think we need to just be honest about what it takes to get to the vision of what we
1: wanna get to. I'd love if we could touch on a couple of things. The first one would be maybe if we could put it in the context of what we can build today and what can be built in VM2 to yeah, get a better understanding of the current limitations and the future ones. And the second one, which I think is the most important one, and probably the reason why some of these conversations are not very open, or, or we try to keep a tight leash on them, is if we could think of ways where we could turn these limitations into positives, you know, we basically pulled out a challenge to developers like, hey, if you want to build something, this is what we can do right now. This is a vision of what we can do in the future. Stick around or bring your friends but most importantly how can they contribute towards that progress like i'm sure that there's people out there that could jump in i think you mentioned concentric something rings that's definitely a ten dollar word yeah it's just about
0: knowing the maturity where the product's at and how many people can like realistically contribute at what time it's not to say we're like being exclusionary it's more about like maximizing what is a good experience for the people who are in the ecosystem at that time. Trust me.
1: I know. I've seen those telegram groups. Once you get more than 25 people, it's just absolute mayhem. (laughs) Awesome. Can we put into those some pragmatic examples of what can be built with what we have right now with the limitations? And then what a VM2 will look like, or some of the key differences. Yeah, probably reference the super apps example and how which blocks should we focus on now and uh, how we take over the world. Sounds good. Yeah. So let's be
0: like very tangible about today. What could be done? That's like a major need, I think, for the ecosystem. And let's like define right now. So there are about 4,000 or so consistently active community members slash superfans on near.org and near. Right. And... How do we get that group from 4,000 active people to like 8,000? Going back to our analogy of if we have an army of eight to 10,000 active community members, we could do anything. Like, so I think one of the big things that Pagoda is putting some design research into and some product thinking in, but we definitely need collaboration with within like the broader developer community is groups. Right now, if you go to, near.org, you sign up, you land on this feed that is full of activity and life. But if I'm actually new to Near, I don't know what to do with that. Like I might peruse it. I might click on somebody's profile. I might open up a component. And that's, that's cool. You're exploring. Like we want people to explore. But really, I think we want to be more, a little more thoughtful about helping people find their tribe. Helping new people self-identify as, like, hey, I love Near, but I'm new to Near. Where is a group that I can talk to with social profiles that are based in Near to talk to other new people? And maybe there's a few community experts who love to just be a, a tour guide, so to speak, or a sherpa. Then there are developers who are like, hey, I like I heard about this thing, I think it's cool, I want to hack my like first component. Where did the newbie developers go? And then there's the hey. I'm a hardcore founder or a hardcore developer. How do I make my way more elegantly to DevHub or to Horizon? How do we have this notion of your onboarding being similar to Reddit, like finding that, that sub-thread that like speaks to you to find your initial tribe that like gets you excited to be here and contributing in some way? And we don't have a really good groups feature that helps facilitate that. That can be built in VM one today. Like those are all social components that already exist. If you take the feed and decompress like the comment system there, you take a profile, kind of fork back, you could fork a few different components and create a group's experience. And then what Pagoda can do is help with some of the design language and the research and how to integrate it into the universal search system and the onboarding system. to make it a high converting, delightful experience to get there. That's something we could do today.
1: I think if I recall from one of the town halls and I may have actually met him, there is a product manager within Pegoda specifically for Neurosocial.
0: Yeah, his name's Gotham and he used to work Twitter. Yeah. That's we, awesome. We, we took him from Twitter. So he he has amazing insight into an easy way to get people into like content they might be interested in. I but know, he needs community. Like he he. He's already been working with near week he loves open source we're really lucky to have him
1: but like he he wants to find somebody else to partner with on this it's funny i almost butcher his name as well but you saved me just in time <laughs> and what is the process at the moment twofold if a user wanted to customize their own near the org experience myspace Probably. style that's possible and what would be the process for changing the default, like the macro default in the same way that it's been done for near week.
0: Yeah. I think there's two two questions there. So the first is like how can I have my own I think if you're saying specifically MySpace, like like my own profile experience where I can customize that. And I think you can get into the profile component today and you can fork it and change it and save it to your default settings. You should be able to do that. It's a little complicated and we can follow up with some more specific directions on how to do that. But I think there is a question around, and this is something that like being very open and honest, we've struggled with from a design perspective, which is like, how much of it is it forkable and customizable for any developer versus any super fan? And there are trade-offs with that. Any developer can go do this today, what I just described. If you learn how to read the component system, You can do that. But a super fan needs to do it in a drag and drop interface. And then there are like certain design restrictions that like we need to think about when you start saying, hey, like I can add components and does that render well in a small mobile environment versus a web environment. Going back to this usability core value that we, why we're here. When you start allowing that level of customization for those who haven't totally learned the power tools, so to speak like you can lead to some broken experiences. So being it can go open, horribly wrong. It could go horribly wrong. And it's not to say that we don't want people to do it, like it is available, it's open source, but we haven't really nailed level of customization uh, that we're recommending. That said, it is, it is available.
1: I think that maybe the MySpace example was not the best one because at the core of MySpace was with that basic structure of the page, the analogy that I always give, uh, I was very young at the time, but my sister had older friends and uh, you could change music. So when people would visit your profile, it would just stop blasting the most horrible yeah. music yeah, yeah. and some of them were emo, you know, the goths at the time. And he was like, My the Chemical syphilis.
0: Romance, Rise Again, Stay alive, everything. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The profile is like bleeding and crying and yeah. <laughs> that is probably less of the customization that I'm interested in. But for instance, I just went to near.org and I'm logged into one of my accounts. Yeah, and I can still see the Minster widget with some photos on the right, and I can't see Nearweek. And uh, th- there's things like sometimes I go to Near Social because I've got the retweet feature. Yeah, on the Near Social timeline, huh? and uh, I'm wondering like. When will the retweet one be included on the other gateway? So oh, it, it, Retweet, it's retweet like, is,
0: it's available now if you go to near.org. Maybe I'm running on an old version. Maybe it might be cached or something. We should look into that. Can you send me a screenshot? <laughs> That'd be great.
1: Yeah, of course. I'll send it. I'll take it now and I'll send it when we finish. No worries. Those would be the sort of things that I would be looking at for setting the right culture, so to speak. Like for instance. Do we yeah. want a social media or do we want a place where hackers gather and talk about ideas? DevHub, I think maybe some people want to make DevHub the default. They just don't want to see a timeline at all.
0: Yeah. Good feedback.
1: Yeah. I think so.
0: There's kind of two questions guess, there. Yeah. There's first is like, what is like the long term goal of near.org? And I think where we're trying to get to. So you know that super app analogy you were describing. So this is like your second question, going back to that. Like today the place for hackers mostly, I would argue, is GitHub. GitHub is where you see, and I believe this like for those that like develop a lot, like you communicate more through your code than you do through your social comments. Interesting. That's yeah, I can which see is that. which is like an insight, right? It's not to say that you're not going to make social comments and and do things like you are. But the way in which like I really believe developers are communicating is through their code, and like it says a lot more to me when you fork my repository and do something and then try to submit a PR back like that says a lot more to me about what you think about my project than, hey, this is cool because because you're putting your energy into making it better potential well, maybe they think it's shit They're like, or maybe I'm they think it's it better shit. Yeah, exactly <laughs> but. The cool thing about developers is that whether you're a positive collaborator or like a competitive collaborator, it still makes the product and the code better. It still makes it better. And I think like what we haven't done well in near.org is to say like, how do we take that mentality of hitting through code as well as allowing community super fans to involved. Because one of the things that people don't know about there's 75 million people on it or so there's not 75 million developers in the world, there's maybe like 25, which means 50 million people have accounts and there's probably duplicate accounts. So it's probably less than 50 million, but like a ton of people who have accounts are there to just like witness what's going on and learn.
1: That is a very generous stake. Cause I'm definitely in the 75 million non-developer, <laughs> I think that we started with a humble aim to develop, and then we fell flat along the way. But yeah, it's it definitely But you were learned.
0: trying to learn. You were there to learn, and, but you wanted to witness like cool code being built or products being built, right? And so how do we take that energy, make that alive and well in near.org in a specialized manner, but then bring in two key components that I think have to be there that are core web three ethos. One some sort of level of community governance, and two, a monetization system. Like what makes a super app, if we go back to a super app, it's the intersection of social commerce. Those two things are what make a super app. The third piece for, I think, like a web three super app is social commerce and community ownership. If we can get those three things working together in the context building web three experiences and more specifically, let's say front ends, which most people need if whether you're in Polygon or Ethereum or Bitcoin, you like you need a decentralized front end for any different reasons. Then I think we do
1: start to capture that energy that you just described. There's definitely two camps on this one. Sure. And as I get older, I can see very clearly which <laughs> one I'm on. It is perhaps more clearly apparent on the Bitcoin and Ethereum communities, Bitcoin is very libertarian, like the sovereign cell, like the lack of consensus between community members. It's almost like a feature. Yeah. We don't want group thing. Like we should okay. never agree on doing something because then we have to agree on something and then we have to, do you always want to keep the humans out of the equation? This is the raw code and it does one thing and that's it. Yeah. Ethereum definitely introduces much more of the human co- collaboration aspect. And definitely a wider range of, like, political spectrum. I am personally against groupthink. I've seen enough bike-shedding in my lifetime that I know that if a person lacks the leadership or the vision or the ability to execute, they tend to drag people in with them. It's not their failure. And it's sad because they tend to drag in people with them that could have actually executed or that actually had leadership. So I'm actually more in the camp of it or like healthy competition. People that are doing things in a certain way should be open to others joining them. So you can have like larger cohorts all working towards the same vision. But I feel like the train, it needs to have been built and there needs to be tracks for the train for people to jump on. Sure. So yeah. And I think that's the bipolar relationship that I have with governance in the because I'm like, yeah, it's great, but if there's no one actually leading, it's just a bunch of clueless people shouting at each other. I hear you, right?
0: So I was VP of product at Kraken, which has some of the original Bitcoin OGs and leadership there. I supported them directly. Like I'm very aware Bitcoin culture. Dan Held is like a friend of mine. I would say that their culture is a reflection of what they sought to make change in the world. And how they choose to govern is a reflection of that as well and ethereum is in a similar camp right you might argue ethereum is trying to like unlock new forms of creativity through applications like with with this global computer that was like the original ethereum vision right it's this global computer sort of thing there's been like a lot of things where people commandeered that into different Value systems, which is why, as you're saying, this is actually a pretty diverse group from libertarian all the way to the communist scale, if you will. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a reflection of values for us in near. Like, if we really want to be the builder's chain, then, and this is like my personal opinion, not any official stance of Pagoda or Foundation. <laughs> this, is, this is purely Alex Kiyoki's personal opinion right now full hat on yeah i like i personally think that we have to subscribe to the religion of what makes things easier for people if it makes things easier for people and opens up the web it, it eliminates middlemen then that's probably the right thing to do now making things easier for people can also mean that you need to have work groups of maybe 20 30 people who are making decisions that are auditable right, for core product experiences, like a group of a community. It's not 10,000 people giving design input. It's 20 top contributors, design and product thinkers. That, and that's like much more of a like command and control sort of mentality, like you were just describing. But on the other side of that, like you have honest feedback loops from every person in the community, and there are transparent ways for that information to get aggregated and brought back to groups of 20 to 30 people to help make design decisions that are easier, then you have a healthy alignment of needs. What? But the danger comes in is who are those 20 to 30 people? And I'm not like,
1: I couldn't tell you who those people should be today. But I guess the question is, what is the product? Because I can tell you from OGs, maybe not as active these days, or at least not in the public life. At times, I don't remember the specific context, but it did come up. Actually, it may have been about the distribution of Nier and how concentrated it is. And there was a bit of validators revolt. It was yeah. that camp. And they told me the chances of Nier getting forked over the next five years and there being whatever. And a new Nier, exactly the same functionality, yeah. but they just find a new tokenomics. Is not zero, like it's a possibility. So that would be the highest level of abstraction. They've got some giga brains, they built something amazing. If builders like what they see, they come and build here. If they don't like it, that they can go to Solana or they can fork it. And I feel like that applies at every level of the stack. When you say, hey, Alex, you and I, let's start a Tamagotchi super app. You and I are co-founders and we bring in the smallest possible team to build a Tamagotchi app. If we do it right, we get users and give a fuck how we design it. They get an experience, they get value. If we don't do it right, it dies quietly. And maybe if there are contributors and they don't like it, they can fork and then there's two Tamagotchi apps. And hopefully over those iterations, one wins. So this is the sort of evolution that sometimes I don't understand why people are very pushy about groupthink. It has to be one way and one way only. And I have to drag yeah. in everyone with me. And by the way, we've already had this evolution and it's been beautiful. Satori evolved into Kipom and now they're both doing their own thing. And yeah. I think what you're
0: saying is compatible with what I just said earlier, but it's there's it depends on where you make the distinction. So Let's say the core near experiences that we just talked about, right? There's this consortium of people that can make fast decisions. That's an open source library. That's an open source experience. So if somebody wants to fork it and say, yeah, I see what you guys are doing there. Just like think of vanilla Android. There's a group of people who are constantly contributing to vanilla Android or Linux. And there's a lot of smart people that look at that and say, you know what? Actually, I'm going to fork that. And I'm going to go build a robotics version of Android that's way better for interacting with the physical world, which is the most common form actually in which like a robotic stack usually starts a of Android, because it's really easy to run. I think in a good open source project, you look at that and you don't say that's a bug, you say that's a feature. But those people who come up with different ideas for how to apply this open source operating system still have expectations of whatever they forked to be getting better, and they can choose to take improvements or not. And if they don't want to, they don't have to, it's their project. But if it doesn't get better at the core, what will actually happen is somebody will come out with a closed source version of robotics OS that does solve their problems. And the unfortunate fact of the matter is if you have a company, like you have a profit motive and you have to find a sustaining business model, if that allows them to get to a sustainable business model faster, they'll go use the closed source version. Like I was an entrepreneur, like. You get to a point where your runway runs so thin, and you've got like a ton of pressure from your investors that, like, you got to figure out what way to perform and how you get there starts to not matter because you're going to die. So, like, we, what we have to do is communicate out what these improvements are and not force people to take them unless they want to. And we're already seeing this like, play out. Look at Near Social versus Near.org, completely different mirror. And everybody who's making their own gateways, like NearPad completely different mirror of a gateway of near.org. Very developer focused. I think the developer experience on Nearpad is awesome. Like the tutorial there was easy enough that a product person can understand it. That's me. If you look at Near Social, it's a much
1: cooler like hacker environment. Like
0: more memification.
1: <laughs> I don't but also shout out to Shard Dog Social. I checked it out. They're doing amazing things like playing with embedding videos and like a ton of stuff, like moving super fast. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But what you're saying links to a question that I was saving for the end, but we might as well just bring it out now. Go for it. (laughs) At what point is Pagoda going to introduce costs for the different products and services? Quote unquote, then your index or APIs look cool. but I know, a cost is eventually coming. And yeah, maybe if you could speak about, about the broader spectrum of products or even yeah. or is that going to be monetized or for all the products there's the philosophy
0: follows two things like everything will be open source so if you want to build it and run it yourself on your own stack your own AWS clusters your own personal machine you always can do it but if you want to use a managed service that has SLAs expectations of support probably a higher level of abstraction and easier to use. You don't have to go set up all your own boxes. There will be costs associated with it because it actually costs quite a bit to run it. Now, what Ilya and I are talking a lot about down the line is like, how do we make sure that those costs are actually aligned with the net of the near ecosystem? So the goal is not for this group within Pagoda to stack a bunch of revenue out of the ecosystem to just hold in a treasury and make personal profit on, the goal would be it's charged in some form or capacity that then gets put into some sort of financial mechanism that brings value back to the ecosystem. And we're a little early to say exactly what that is, but I can tell you, I can give you a hint that like the way you may be charged after a free tier, by the way, we're always going to let people try a free tier, is maybe something around staking. You might have just some like staking requirements to continue to use it. And that's a good thing for me, right? That actually helps with decentralization and helps keep money in the economy. And it keeps all of our needs aligned towards common good. So that's a form of payment though. And we do need to be comfortable with that because these things do have cost.
1: Would it be a staking requirement, but the user still keeps the staking rewards or the staking rewards goes towards Pagoda?
0: No, it would be likely and again, this isn't finalized. I need the safe harbor clause here it will likely be that you stake and that you delegate your stake and you like may pay for your cost of service through staking rewards itself, or you can do a direct pay. We'll have to figure that out. But I think the important thing is that like we really want to make sure we double click on, if you want to run it yourself. You don't have to do that but it does cost money to have high performing slas and support and managed services that have upgrades whatever money will get charged there we want it to be aligned with the ecosystem good that's something that's core to what Ilya and i have been talking about
1: can you think of web2 i know that they exist can you think of web2 examples that have a similar model it's free and open source to self-host but then you can also pay and you just get the -the out-of-the-box experience. I think WordPress. WordPress is a great example.
0: I think another good one is like Rudder Stack on analytics, I think does this as well. There's like an open source SDK that you can use, but then if you like want extra data analytics services, to some extent- Discourse. Discourse. There's a few. But I think the differences even between Web2 and this is like the money that's being charged, we want to figure out how to put the value back into ecosystem as well.
1: Let's do like, my second question. Yeah. Joseph I go to have any outside investors. Uh, we've
0: never formally raised money, to my understanding. I think there, our funding comes, from my understanding, mostly from foundation, like many of us. And there is not like the cap table doesn't have any VCs or anybody like that on it. I shouldn't say the cap table because there's some sensitivities there but i could tell you there's not like outside vcs and stuff on it so. it's like protein and shit no nothing like that okay no, and, and no one i know you're kidding but it is important because in order th- there is an important ballast that happens because of that like i told you about the pressure of having outside investors as a
1: former entrepreneur
0: there there is some intentionality behind that
1: 100 percent, and that's precisely what i was asking and i think that You can also look like the layer beyond that. It's important to separate the foundation as a not for profit with a mission for growth from an actual engineering company. An R&D company. products and being sustainable. So yeah, it makes sense for the funding relationship to exist that way. And it's also good that the engineering vehicle, it's not constrained by outside interests, at least in the form of external capital. Yeah. It's hard. Like it, this goes back to, you're you asking
0: me about like, how are we going to win as near? Like what I just described there and, and I did do a tokenomics workshop with Ilya and some like really smart economists people at e c c we were just like brainstorming. And the the simple thing I could tell you is that we can't just do what ETH did or what Bitcoin did. Like those are successful models. They're breakout successes in their own, round. but we cannot do the same thing. The type of product and technology we're building is different. Do they rhyme and have inspiration from those other two things? Yes. But we have to figure out how to do value alignment in a tighter economy than they did for this whole taking over the attention layer to work. And there's like a lot of really cool thinking that we've been exploring around. like How do we help apps bring the most attention to Web3? Whether you're bringing attention to Ethereum or Bitcoin or anybody, how do we actually help them get pass through money for being a great, consistent, secure attention source to those protocols. And this is like how we disrupt the traditional advertisement model of Google and and Meta who, who basically control the attention economy right now. If you're not playing by Google's and Meta's rules, like you're not getting attention to your app or website, period, and there is a way to actually, to break you asked me about long-term vision like there's a way for us to look at that if you want to see a hint of my opinions a year ago i wrote a blog on my website alexgipke.com about like why i think sweat is one of the most innovative consumer products i've seen they like there's some hints into how it is possible to use boss plus
1: new tokenomic to disrupt I was going to go to your website to read your blog, but I ended up on Steve Aoki's website Uh, and I was just like banging. Yeah. 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 Common mistake. Common thing that happens. Yeah. No. I did watch a lot of the YouTube videos, but I missed that one. I'm, I'm super intrigued. That may be an example of some of the conversations that I've had with Ilya. My mind always expands. You know, the art of what's possible definitely kicks in and... Sometimes I see that gap on some of the things that are being implemented in the ecosystem or even being actively pushed by things like the NDC. One of the things that he mentioned that are similar, but maybe at an individual level, not on an app level, would be, say there is a community treasury, or like a smaller pot of money, and then people are able to like give kudos so say hypothetically this podcast goes out and everyone's like oh my god what a fantastic piece of content they could give kudos to you and or me for whatever period of time sure and then that near in the pot of gold gets stripped to the people that hold kudos and he was saying that it could even be a very interesting way to almost be able to hire someone in a decentralized way engineers open source contributors It definitely feels that void of there's people creating real value, but they're not formally employed by anyone. I thought it was brilliant. I know that NDC v1, v2, whatever comes next, is working on a form of reputation. And once we have that, it'd be possible to implement. I also love the idea of, again, creating that builder culture is elevating those builders and acknowledging the value that they create, not just for their apps, because some things are very hard to monetize, but for the ecosystem. I remember early day Stacks had an app mining program.
0: Yeah.
1: I think it worked. I'd have to double click to see what the issues yeah, were remember. there. But I personally loved it. I really liked, and by the way, there was an app there that I actually started using every day. It was a journaling app. I've been trying to convince developers on year to create a journaling app because what would be easier than getting people to come back every day and journal? But yeah. So that's...
0: I'm with you. I think there's a few things that are like interesting topics to to digest there. So, like on the point about organization through like a you might call like almost more of like a mercenary style or gig style program. Like I actually believe that's the way that work is going. You know, if I give you an analogy here, so I live in Los Angeles. Hollywood is actually a very mature creative industry at this point. The first drama of Hollywood was a like hundred years ago, and if you look at the way modern output products and their products are like movies and tv shows which actually follow a very similar arc of software like you got to do a lot of user research there's a lot of technical challenges like 3d design and doing on-set production is like all really complex technical challenges and the way it works now is you have a few studios like six or seven of them that money and then they hire production companies and independent directors who then put together strike force teams to actually go make a a movie or a TV show. And these people come together and they like go build it. And then they go their separate ways to different projects. There's not like hundreds of thousands of people who are just on staff, like making movies. Software is actually starting to do is follow a similar arc where right now, like hundreds of thousands of people are mostly in like giant web two tech companies that are building a lot of technology, but increasingly more and more stuff is open source. Like more and more stuff is being built through gigs and through tasks. And as product gets more composable and technology gets more interoperable, which is happening through near and three in general, the ease of building a team on the fly to go say, go build a group's product feature or go build A better developer ide experience like the speed of which that's being able to get done is faster and now we actually have the economic tools with like smart contracts where we can hold things in trustless escrow to get it done i think over the next five years that like software development is going to look more like this freelance model similar to making movies than it does necessarily today with these giant monolithic companies i do believe that's going to happen because it allows for creative people to express more creative autonomy, take the projects that they want, and they have there's more economic efficiency in building that way. The trouble is there is a downside to this that we have to be very careful with, because with any innovation, there's always downside. Can I guess what it
1: is? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> job security,
0: how do you monetize? So job security becomes a major issue. And like I have a lot of friends in industry here, and they're like going from project to project. And then the second one is who controls the pots of money that fund the opportunities. And this is where I do believe as I was getting to smart contracts can actually fix a lot of this because the ripe abuse that happens and you're seeing there's actually a strike right now in Hollywood of writers and actors is there's no transparency to the funding process by these studio executives. They just play you against each other. They do very dirty, I would say borderline unethical things. But if everything is funded through a publicly audible place, if somebody's doing it that way, there's always going to be somebody else who can attract better talent by not operating in that way. And I do believe this is where we can make it.
1: I grew up in Venezuela. So that's a, a separate set of childhood trauma. But fair, fair. I always revert back to resilience. And for me, there's some very deeply ingrained thing about there must be always be an alternative as you were saying what came to my mind was that people willing to starve should win if you say hey i got the keys to the kingdom i decide to get who gets funded and i say i'm willing to do it for free there should still be pathways for my product to reach the market to reach the audience and for me to be able to basically prove the funders wrong whether money actually flows from that source or not at the end it's a separate story and how to ensure that the funding is efficient and we don't have to get to that. It's another story, but thats that to me is the biggest difference between having centralized sources of funding, because someone has to do it, and having open ecosystem, resilient ecosystems. Just a little side note.
0: No, I'm with you. I'm with you on most of it. There's one part I think I disagree a little bit, like on those who are willing to starve should win. I like. It like, reminds me of an old thing my dad used to tell me. He used to always say, work hard, but work smart. And I was like, no, dad, work smart and work hard if you have to. I think what we should try to incentivize is, and this is just like my personal opinion, like I think we should try to incentivize people to come up with creative new approaches to solving old problems. And if people come up with a new approach, like there should be a transparent way for you to get money to go do that. But like your willingness to starve to get there. Don't be wrong, like there are points in my life where I had more debt than cash. Like being a founder is really hard. But like, I I don't, I almost don't want to like celebrate like the grit for the sake of grit because I think you don't get the best creativity out of people. Yeah.
1: Look, we're definitely aligned. Obviously, it's very hard to catch all the nuance in one phrase. So, and there's something about willing to starve and winning that kind of rhymes to me. But sure. I think to me, it's just capturing the ethos of not letting that centralized body. I see. Dictate what gets worked on and what doesn't. Or even the lack of funding. Like, it's sad to me to some extent that the bear market kills most of the innovation. I know. It's been hard. And uh, once again, like, I don't think anyone should starve. But if you have that conviction and you're able to work smart and hard, at least you should have that pathway to innovate. Hundred, And you can probably draw some parallels in the web tool world where you can see how that pathway gets shut down. Say, hypothetically, you're able to work without pay during COVID, but you're physically not allowed to do that last mile delivery. But yeah, I think that Web3 should always remain open so that people can do their thing even if they're not being funded directly.
0: So it's funny that you say that. And not funny in the sense of like, I've had those exact same thoughts and you're reminding me of four or five years ago where I was like really fed up with like traditional venture capital model, which is like ultimate gamekeeper. If you look at the way VC mostly works, it's there's like only five funds really that make all of the strategic decisions. And then like most of the other funds are just doing like follow-ons on their strategies, which means if you don't follow into the world that those five funds like believe is the right thing, unless you have independent breakout success, like you're not going to get anybody's attention. And what I loved about web three and like why I started like contributing early to eat, to validators, very early test nets and Solana, I helped do some like early market making around independently was that I looked at this and I was like, here are creative people that are like trying to do something new and they're crowdsourcing funding without a vc gatekeeper and that's not to say they didn't bring vc money on later or at some point but like they weren't dependent on it it was just an option so to your point about the bear market like unfortunately those taps have been really turned down quite a bit but the reason why that's happened which i actually believe is like a good thing is like the token model was abused and there were some really bad actors who spoiled the pool for a lot of people, which kind of goes back to like my original call to action, where like crypto, open web three, whatever you want to call our community, meets a new model. Like we have to figure out another model besides just pure token issuance. We have to figure out a model that may use tokens in it, but takes in another valuable economy and, and makes it open. That's not a, a closed economy and makes it open. And I think that's the attention economy now for us. Like, I think you look at the biggest economy outside of finance and it's everybody in online advertising and attention.
1: Twerking on foot picks. That's where the money is these days. <laughs> twerking. Like,
0: yeah, think, and then auction markets for the advertisement rights for
1: those videos. Incredible. Alex, just a really quick parenthesis. How tight are you with time? I do need to end at five, if that's okay. Okay, okay, all good. So what we'll do is, I want to run really quickly through your experience. I just want to make sure that we have the full context of who you are as a person and the experience that you bring into the role. Okay. And then we're good. going to jump into community questions. Some yeah. of these, I'm, I'm not going to say who they're from, but you can probably see that they are from the inside. That's good, that's good. So you mentioned that you studied at UCLA, majoring in philosophy?
0: No, I studied actually at UC Davis. I majored in philosophy, specifically analytical logic systems, which is like trying to take things like vagueness or metaphysics and convert those arguments into essentially equations that could be assessed for validity. So before you have experimental data, that's how you assess whether or not your hypothesis is like worth running experiments on, which like, I try to bring to my product day to day. I didn't realize it would be helpful, but it is. And then my it's second so major was comparative politics, so specifically like studying political systems from a, from around the world.
1: That's fascinating. So I would imagine that first major would have a strong maths component or technical component.
0: Yeah, it does. It starts to converge with theoretical math at a certain level. I would say, like, I'm you can ask Elia this I'm better at the uh, hypothesis forming side than the math side, but I know enough of the math side to read something and roughly understand what's happening.
1: This is where teamwork makes framework, as long as you do the maths. Yeah, I have enormous respect for
0: true mathematicians. I can only pretend to read what they do.
1: Lucky for you, you could probably get away with it if you talk to someone that knows even less like me. Now, how does that lead to the tech world? And I guess LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I originally, I thought I was going to go work for the UN. That was my goal. I really believed that like inter systems were like a way to promote, I would say, social good. Then I like worked for a few... State governments and government agencies and nonprofits, and I just saw that the like value to incentive alignment was, let's just say, inefficient. And I'm like, you can be actually fairly impatient sometimes. So at that point, I had like an existential crisis, and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And, uh, so I applied to jobs, the places where there are good jobs, was like in banking and tech. When everybody thinks about, did not culturally fit in with banking, even though they were like, oh, you're like fairly smart. You could probably make us money. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to hate my life every day here. And then LinkedIn was like a pretty small startup at the time. And they offered me like a $10 an hour contract for two and a half months. Yeah. Like maybe you could do something versus like the banking offer I had was like quite comfortable for a recent grad. So everybody thought I was, that I took this startup, but I really enjoyed it. And like, to this day, I actually believe in terms of social network companies, has stayed very true to its mission and vision to connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. And they've been marching towards that like fairly scandal-free for 15 years. And so I fell in love with that and started just doing like market and em- analysis work for them early on. Interesting. How long did you stay with them? Close to six and a half years. So did you receive stock? I did at one point, not when I was a contractor. The first year I didn't. Uh, by the big thing more than the stock though, for me was, is a learning culture. And so I actually applied for a leadership development program internal for like people from a business background to learn technical skills. I was like one, there are two people who are selected out of 300 applicants. And I spent two years learning front end development, like basics of data science, business analytics, product management, project management. And I built a prototype on my own that they were like, this is really cool and some salespeople helped me get in front of some customers. And then they invited me to the product management team and I became a product manager. So I like felt very lucky to work there, like culturally, on honestly, like the fact you talked about, like people who are willing to put in the effort and do something for free. That was not my job. Like I was doing it because I was passionate about it and I got recognized. I was very lucky to be able to then take on a product management leadership position because of it.
1: And. That's amazing. Last one on LinkedIn. Did you meet Reid Hoffman?
0: Did meet Reid Hoffman?
1: Yeah. He's probably the most quoted person on this podcast now. As I tell people the story of me being sad and depressed on a bus in Sydney on my way to a coffee to see if I could get myself a job. I was meeting the person doing legal tech at one of the top consulting companies here. And I was listening to one of the podcasts with Reid Hoffman. I think it was great matter. Yeah. And great. he was explaining the difference between being a professional, you do a job, they pay you, you can go somewhere else, it's very transactional, and a vocation, where you rise to the challenge of your time. It's a concept that has definitely stuck with me, especially in Web3, because there are many roles out there where I keep telling people, we're not looking for an employee. We're looking for somebody to step up to the challenge. Yeah. There's no job description. We have a mission and we do whatever it takes to get there. Like- yeah. Yeah. Moving on to Kraken, how did you make your way there? What was the interest in crypto?
0: Yeah, so prior to Kraken, I did an AI startup and that was three years. uh, First six months on my own, we tried to build like hardware and software. I actually used one of Ilya's libraries when he was at Google. Didn't know him, but yeah, it's a really funny story. So talk about communicating through code, like I knew about Ilya from his code. Before actually knowing him as a leader and a founder, and I felt like there was something. Which one there. is
1: nicer, the code or the human? They're both great. They're both great. They're just different. They're definitely different. Because I've seen Alias speak Russian, and I've seen him speak English, and I see it with myself when I speak Spanish and when I speak English. Same language gives you a different way of expressing yourself, and different personality traits come through. Different interests come through. I can only imagine what his mind connecting to a machine would be like, but. There's a lot of precision in this code. I'll just say that.
0: And I think though, to build an open source AI library is pretty hard thing to do. But so with that though, I actually had, we, I had a soft landing for the company. We ended up selling it. I was pretty upset with the whole process. Like I wanted to keep going bigger, but had a difference of opinion with a few folks. Like, everybody will have good relationships, but it gets hard at the end, especially when you're running out of money. And I have a friend who's like an old Bitcoin and Ethereum person who I will not dox. So I was having... Satoshi. (laughs) Satoshi. Not that cool. But he's been around for a little while. And he was like, hey, like, this ecosystem, and I just, I mentioned, just fell in headfirst. And I, like, actually, the book, though, that solidified it for me after just, like, the technical interest was believe it or not the book sapiens because like many people before you get orange pilled it's really hard to actually shape the convention that like money in society could be decoupled and the book sapiens if you haven't read it goes through the history of and like you see that money was in a bunch of different forms prior to it being a green dollar it was cowrie shells it was gold it was there were barter systems in many societies even before that and like the fact that we have money the way it exists today is purely a, like a social convention of this time. And that made everything click for me, like in terms of the impact. And so then at that ethos and culture, I literally sent them like an application to like a junior product management job. And I still remember to this day, like one of the recruiters called me up and he said, like, you're like really overqualified for this job. And like the executives liked your resume, but are you sure this is the job you want? I was like, look, man, like, I just have heard from great friends that you guys are cool. I think your product like is got good bases, but like we could do more things with it. I just wanted to have a conversation. I'm actually having a really good time in these independent (laughs) communities, but I'm just exploring. We built a relationship. I started as a consultant and then the bull market hit and I was one of the only people that had product leadership experience and they were like, hey, why don't you come run the product management team? And that was two years of just like a wild ride. Really amazing though.
1: Yeah. Amazing. And you discovered near while you were there. What were some of the first impressions? I would imagine you were exposed to many ecosystems and eventually what made it click for you finally to make the jump, I would imagine. Was it cold cold approach to pagoda as well? That's
0: funny funny question there. So we had a token listing team at Kraken and one of the product managers ran that and he sent me a message and he was like, have you seen this in thing? And I looked at it, I was like, oh, here we go. Another ETH killer, I've seen this before. And he's like, you know, the people involved in it are like really amazing. Their approach is very interesting. Like their vision is not to just build an ETH killer, but like to go even further. And I was like, all right, as I read the white paper and I went through it and I was like, wow, this is very cool. And by the way, it was not like just my decision to list it. There's like a whole committee and approval process. It's like very legally diligent and everything. So we like, but I was a thumbs up. I was like, this is very cool. Hey, okay. but I, and I took like a mental note of it because at the time though, things were like, I was at Kraken, things were going a million miles an hour. And I was like, I'll just keep an eye out on these guys. There's a few projects that I continued to do that. Um, and then while I was there, actually somebody, uh, a recruiter sent me a message on LinkedIn being like, Hey. Have you ever thought about like joining a community? It was like very cryptic. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then they told me like, we're actually recruiting for near. And I was, oh, I remember you guys. Yeah. I'd love to have
1: a conversation. And it's. This explains so much. Why are we trying to recruit people? Like it is a cult. (laughs) He did a good job. I won't
0: say who the recruiter was. He's an outside agency person. And for we, had, we just had conversations for a long time and I was like not looking to go do anything else for a while. And then I got a chance to talk to Ilya and I had written my own paper about where I thought blockchains were going to go in the long term. And I shared that with him and he was like, I see the same world. And basically I came in as a consultant to Ilya to help with product guidance for the ecosystem.
1: We're entering the rapid fire round because I've got some fire questions from the community and we're fire here as well basically the whole thing is burning down yeah let's do it is that paper publicly available and do you think that if anybody creates similar content with vision etc and it gets in front of the right people would have some opportunities yeah we can make that paper publicly available like i'm open to posting it i'll talk to Ilya about it too but i'm open
0: to it it's not it's like more shorthand it's not like a fully published thesis, but it's an idea. And so happy, happy to share that. And in terms of opportunities for people to share their wild ideas, like, yeah, absolutely. Like I try to keep myself very available to like where people think that like near should go and what I can do to help them with their vision. I think Ilya does too. I think at the time, like, I think Ilya was looking for a very experienced product leader to help augment him. And me going to Pagoda was more of like, he brought me when he decided to become CEO again. That's not And he asked me to come with him. And then I went through an interview process, of course, and had to get like formally checked by the Pagoda team.
1: Always due diligence. Nothing in this podcast will be used in a lawsuit. I like it, because the classic who's the decision maker here, I feel like people can get burned down a little bit on the community side. If they have a big idea or a big vision, but it's just not in front of the right people, especially just to see the potential. If somebody else dismisses it, but it's just not the right audience. It, I've always liked that Near is very flat, and you can really get in front of people. So, we'll have all your contacts in, in the comment section.
0: To that point, like if you go to if you go to you go to my profile. Like my Telegram is just openly there. I think, like hi oh my god, the bots must be having a blast with you. But that's the funny thing is, yeah, it is. It's just openly there. Like, no, you'd be surprised. It's actually not. There's not too many bots yet. Now it might be like tempting fate. But I think my point is like I definitely believe in an open door policy. And your personal
1: assistant is also great. Shout out to April. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I do filter. I do filter. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Next question. This is a good one. I've skipped a couple, but whatever. Editorial privilege. What challenges have you faced? pushing for a product inside an organization that is traditionally engineering focused and driven? How have you adapted and what change have you been able to bring to the organization?
0: Yeah, good question. Pagata has definitely been an engineering led culture. I would say, yeah, I, it's hard. So I tell the product team this actually fairly regularly. Nobody has actually truly nailed Web3 open source product as a like, strategic discipline. There is no playbook for this. All the playbooks for product management that exist right now, if you go read like Cracking the PM interview, all Web2 style product management, which does not apply directly. Web2 product management actually makes an assumption that you can hide the way things are made to actually have outsized value of perceived value versus cost of building. And in that gap is the profit margin of Pinterest, Google, Meta, et cetera, like it is as simple as that. And so the approach that we have to take in web three. And I look at the work that I'm doing Pagoda is just one instance of it. There's a lot of it that has to be done across the ecosystem As like, part of the reason why I'm actually really excited to be here. It's like, it's an opportunity to rewrite the rule book, so to speak for the discipline to say, there's a new way to think about product management. And I think the challenges are like, how do you build really tight experiences? while also making the magic, so to speak, how it's done, open source and available. Nobody has really nailed the formula for that. And if I was to say on a day-to-day basis, it's figuring out the right moments to do both and some sort of like structured formula is what I want to arrive at at some point in time, it is the biggest challenge.
1: But to, to the question, and I think that's how we open the conversation, everything goes full circle always. Other than the challenges of product practice in general in Web3, are there any specific challenges of trying to invent this new way of doing things while being embedded within an engineering entity, which I guess engineering has much understood and easier to assess practices, KPIs, etc.? There are challenges, like engineering
0: is... I think when you're building services and APIs, and there's a bunch of different types of product that you build, there's services and APIs, there's infrastructure, and then there are like end user experience. When we talk about product, all of those are different products. And when you're building infrastructure or services and APIs with an engineering, strong engineering organization, which is a good thing, not a bad thing, like the engineers have very strong opinions about how they should be used because the product's meant for developers, infrastructure is meant for another developer, and API is meant for another developer, not your average person down the street. And so what I think in those circumstances, what good PMs have to do is not try to go head-to-head in debating like, the best syntax approach of calling the API. It's to up-level to say, like, where's our strategic positioning? Where is like, the way we communicate this to market in an authentic way? How do we stay organized and efficient and how we get there? And not to try to force an engineer into a long debate about that experience. Complement those strong skills, recognize that they have them, and build an overall good experience.
1: You nailed the tension or the confusion that some of the community has with Pagoda. It seems like at some point there was a transition from core infrastructure to building and products. Some people or there may be like a lack of focus, it may be seen to be competing with like other ecosystem players. From our conversation, it seems like a lot of these things are on the roadmap to open source. Some of the things I've heard to date is fast auth, making people choose between two options. You can't export your private keys. There's just an element there that may generate some tension.
0: Hundred percent. If I can comment, just like directly on that, because I think it's a really important thing. Like, if we just take a step back, fast off as a product approach had not been done before, right? The idea of taking meta transactions, key signing via like an open source biometric system, and bringing that all together is it, with a decentralized email recovery system. Nobody had brought that whole world together. It's like three simultaneous innovations that like we barely duct taped together. And like, we needed to like, continue to look at it and like fix some like very critical issues before, like in good faith, we could put an SDK out there that wouldn't just flood, frankly, like a small engineering team into like overwhelming amounts of of requests for things that we know are broken. So. Like what we haven't done a good enough job though, what I think like the community's fair feedback is is, like reiterating that our intention is to make these things available and also looking at our own internal operations well enough with good enough predictions as to like when it will happen. I can tell you now it's going to be in September, right? It's going to happen. We're going to have an SDK.
1: Near APAC?
0: I can't commit right now if it's exactly near APAC or not. I'm sorry. but I Are you going to be there? I will be a near-hate pack, though, I promise. It's a near haypack, yeah. I, that you are. It's a free speech world. You're welcome to speculate, but I, I can't comment.
1: Alex, really briefly, I know you have to jump off in one minute and 30 seconds. This has been an amazing interview. Honestly, I think we've got another two hours in us. You have to come back. The last question from the community. Personal goals play a big part in an industry driven by conviction. What resume bullet points would, you, would leave you feeling accomplished and ready to move on to the next product?
0: Wow. Deep. Whoever asked this one, thank you, is a good one. I have been thinking about my existential future fairly recently. I think if this went well, I have innovated myself out of a job and I actually can move more towards academia. So the resume bullet points would be like, helped create an ecosystem with like large value. I don't know what the number is, but like large self-sustaining value that open sourced a critical part of the closed attention economy. Like that, that's what I would write it as. And then what I would love is if I could continue to be an ecosystem member, watch people like take this beyond what I could imagine. And then I can go get my PhD in like tech ethics and. Come on more podcasts with you and just like talk about this is the way to build technology and look at these amazing people that innovated me out of a job.
1: If you're a game, I would love to add to your resume bullet points a Tamagotchi app.
0: Yeah, yes, 100%. 100%.
1: We can hack on this together. Alex, thanks so much. I am extremely grateful that someone as busy as you is able to dedicate two hours to the podcast. I know that from our loyal listener base, they really appreciate it, and we, yeah, we're we'll definitely to have you back. Is is Pagoda open to having more frequent communication channels and thinking like Twitter Spaces and things like this? Because there's a lot, definitely a lot of things in this conversation that may not stay relevant as we continue to ship code and the ecosystem iterates. But I'm thinking of the best ways to have more ongoing updates first.
0: I'm grateful to be here and I'm actually very grateful that we have open source community journalists like yourself, like who who bring like more attention to the ecosystem and knowledge. Like it's very, it's actually a very underappreciated job and I'm sure it feels very thankless at times. And I know this because my partner is a journalist in a documentary space. So I, I like very much appreciate the opportunity to be here. Speaking specifically about Pagoda, like I would love for you to be able to have more frequent communications with the product managers who are actually in charge of some of these direct features and applications you talked about. I think we'd be very open to that. I've actually been pushing every PM to be like more open source focused and work more with the community. And you're starting to see pockets like that with near week, actually fast off, I'll give you a little teaser. A mobile SDK is probably gonna be co-created with sweat. So there are people who are really trying to move in this way. And so their ability to like work with more community folks like yourself and get exposure is going to only help perpetuate that. So I, I would love for us to have more PMs on your show.
1: Awesome. Definitely send them over, Alex. Thanks so much. That'd be awesome. That'd be super fun. Yeah. Thank you, man. Take care. Have a good day. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.